Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Brand new episode today with Pip Hare. Uh, she is a solo sailor, and she's the eighth woman in history to ever complete the Vendée Globe, a solo sailing race around the world known as the, quote, Everest of the Seas. She's been all over the world doing huge races, and today we're talking about the craziness involved and the dedication it takes to do something like the Vendée Globe, a, a race literally around the world. There is no bigger stage to have a race than the globe uh, unless you go into space you know that's about the only other format that could be bigger so this is a really cool interview pip is uh it was incredibly interesting to talk to i really enjoyed um just her perspective on the whole thing very cheerful and happy and just made it sound like you know a walk in the park when really this is one of the most incredible feats of adventure we've ever had on the show frankly and the fact that she's the eighth woman in history ever to do this is is just absolutely mind-blowing. So lots of links to follow Pip on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok. She's got a website as well, Facebook. Hope you enjoy and hope you get out there and do something like the Vendée, a round-the-world solo sailing race. Unbelievable. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today, we are having, it's kind of a unique episode for us. We don't often get to talk to solo sailors. We we have had some. We've had some great ones on the show, but it is not as frequent as maybe your, your hikers and bikers where it's you know a lot easier to do. This is a very specialized skill. I am very excited to welcome Pip Hare to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Absolutely. So, so where uh, where's home for you and where are you coming from? So I am speaking to you from my home in the UK. So I live on the south coast in a place called Poole. And small fact for you, it's the second largest natural harbour in the world. Wow. So do you know the first largest? Somewhere in Canada somewhere. Yeah, there's a lot in Canada. That makes sense. No way. That's so neat. I'm looking at this now. So how close is that to where you, to where you grew up or to where you were, you kind of spent your childhood? Oh, so I grew up actually quite, uh, about probably 300 miles away from here, which in the UK is actually quite far. Yeah. Yeah. Here in the States, that's like a, a morning commute. Yeah. So I grew up in a town called Huntingdon, which is landlocked and it's in East Anglia. So kind of middle east of the UK. Landlocked. I know you didn't find sailing till you were about 16. What what, what led to even being introduced to sailing? Because I, I, I imagine you didn't do it much before 16 just because of being landlocked. But you, you tell me. I did sail from a very young age because my grandfather was a sailor. He'd always been a sailor on the East Coast. He, he grew up there. And when I was a, a very small baby, my parents used to take me sailing with him in his little wooden boats on the rivers in the East Coast. So kind of I knew about boats and I was quite familiar with boats, but it was more kind of just for me then it was more about being on and around the water. So it was mostly jumping off boats, swimming around boats, swimming to the shore, building tree houses, that sort of thing. In my sort of mid-teens, I come from a reasonably large family. There was four kids in my family and my parents thought it would be good 
we're all quite close in age. So my parents thought it would be good for all of us when we hit our kind of mid-teens to go off on a holiday on our own. And I went on a sailing holiday. And it was the first time really that I'd experienced a sailing holiday with lots of other young people, but also it was run by young people. And that's really when it it really kind of took hold of me. And and it probably from that moment onwards, sailing was all I thought about, all I wanted to do. I just thought it was incredible. That experience with those young people, it was, I mean, was this wasn't a long solo adventure across a sea. This was kind of shorter experiences, learning how to sail almost like a summer camp or something like that. Yeah, it was a week-long sailing trip where oh, wow. we took three non-engined little boats, but they were they were they were twenty-three foot each, and you could sleep on them and cook on them. And basically, there were kind of three young people on each boat, and then a fourth who was an old young person. So, kind of, I think the people who were supervising us were like either late teens or early twenties. And we just went off sailing. We just went off sailing around the coast of southwest England for for a week. We had to do all of our own shopping, cooking. We had to do our own navigation. We sailed the boats on our own. We made our own decisions. And it's I think it's really easy to understand why I fell in love with the sport then. Because when you're 16 years old in the UK... There's not a lot you're allowed to do. Um, <laughs> you can't you can't drive. You're not allowed to take responsibility for anything. The rules and restrictions are very much kind of against you. And yet, 16 really is you know right in the middle of that age where you want to start exploring boundaries. You want to start being more responsible and adventuring and exploring and all of those sorts of things. And actually sailing is an incredible sport you you can be in command of your own vessel you can steer it you can push it you can make the decisions and I think that I love the sport I love the feeling of being outside in the environment and the way that you know you make your own power to travel I loved all of that I loved the people that I spent my time with and I loved the way that I was in charge in in a way I couldn't be in charge in any of the rest of my life. And so it just really appealed to me. And, and I think that's probably why I fell in love with it as a sport. How much, because I'm not, I'm not a sailor, but we've had plenty on the show, but I've never asked this. How much are you in charge? I know that the pieces putting everything where they need to be, you are in charge of, but how, how, compared to maybe like a vehicle, a car, where you can just immediately turn and go, how, how much do you have to be looking around you and paying attention and making sure you have plenty of time and room to make the changes you need? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually, and, and kind of multi-layered, really. On the face of it, you know, the wonderful thing about the ocean is, other than the depth it has no boundaries. You can go anywhere and do anything, your choice. And and with the weather as well, you can choose to go out in certain weather conditions. They could be good choices or bad choices. Or once you're out on the water, 
you have to put up with, unless you're in a boat like the one I sail now, when we can sail faster, we can sail faster than some weather systems. But in normal boats, once you're out on the water, you get the weather that that you get given. You know, there's an art then in 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 interpreting the weather and understanding where you should be and when. But but actually, kind of, you have quite a lot of ability to make those choices and to and to be in control. But the skill when to become a skilled sailor, I think you have to build up a body of experience and knowledge that allows you to foresee what could happen and understand the consequences of a bad or a badly timed action. So you you are dictated to by the weather, by the size of your boat, by how um, quickly you can respond as a human being. But with enough foresight, you know, you can really do some some cheeky things. You can get into tiny spaces. You can kind of take the tide up a river and then take it back out again. But it just it just comes with a lot of planning and and foresight and experience, really. I live next to a harbor that has hundreds of sailboats, and it seems such it's like such an intimidating thing to get into coming from like being a, a, a riding bicycles and hiking, you know, or being on a paddleboard where you or a kayak where you just paddle where you want to go. It's obviously not very fast, but you are in total control and there's, it's very navigable and manageable. So it, it just seems like such a, a beast to understand like horses almost, you know what I mean? Where <laughs> they have a mind of their own. Yeah, and I I actually, I do understand what you said. I think a lot of people do kind of get a little bit just overwhelmed by, you know, for example, you you cannot sail straight into the wind. You, if, you're, if your ultimate destination is directly upwind, you have to zigzag to it. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, one of the things I'm quite passionate about as a sailor is just trying to demystify it a bit because I think that historically there's a lot of vocabulary that's used around sailing and 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 I I don't think it's ever really been that well explained kind of in common language for people to engage and understand it but it actually isn't that complicated it takes a little while to grasp the basics but I think that's the same for any water sport takes a little while to grasp the basics because even on your paddleboard you still need to be aware of which direction the wind's blowing because you know ultimately the minute you pause you're going in that direction and you need to be aware of if there's any current as well so those sorts of things are actually things that you probably automatically do think about. It's just that somehow in sailing, they seem to become more complicated. For someone, because, you know, this is the Adventure Sports Podcast. A lot of people listen for the stories, but there are people who are definitely hear a story like this and, and become want to try the sport out. What are some of the things when people go to, you know, people who are early in their sailing adventures 
some of the things they're afraid of that you're like, that's really not an issue. And what are some things that are the opposite, which, which are, you need to be aware of that a lot of people don't think about. So I think probably initially people are actually very intimidated by other sailors quite often. And I know I was quite early in my career you know, as you say, there's there's kind of yacht clubs with hundreds of boats in them and people going in and out and they're all very confidently marching up and down. And actually, you know, if you're not a boat owner, if you're just trying to integrate yourself into the, that community, I think it can be a bit daunting and a bit intimidating. But actually, you know, I would say to that, that sailing is a sport that everyone can enjoy and everyone has a skill that is relevant to sailing and that's kind of part of the reason why it appeals to me so much particularly yacht sailing you know when when you think about your average crew on a yacht you, you need it's especially if you start going offshore and that's where the as far as i'm concerned that's where the real adventure is you know the, the ability to explore and to cross oceans and and all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, you need the ability to, okay, you, you've got to be able to steer the boat and trim the sails. But you've got also got to be able to understand the weather forecast. You've got to be able to navigate. You need people on board who are really good communicators that can kind of knit a crew together and direct multiple people to do things at the same time you know you need people who are physically strong to do one area on the boat you need people who've got a good eye for detail to do another area on the boat and it's because boats are all so different whatever your physical abilities or limitations there is a kind of sailing that will suit you it's an incredibly adaptable sport I think probably a lot of people initially overly intimidated by getting things right all the time. And actually, for the most part, when something goes wrong on a sailing boat, there's a bit of flapping and ropes banging around and it sounds like it's bad. But sailing boats are built to keep you safe. They're built to keep you safe and and actually kind of don't be afraid of it when things go wrong. Quite often when I see beginners out and things go wrong, people raise their voices, they start to get a little bit panicked, they raise their voices a bit more. And actually one of the best things you can do when it feels like things are starting to go wrong, sometimes it's just do nothing just wait, just wait for the boat to heel over and then come back again and then sort it out, step back, think about it, stay calm, but also just kind of believe that you have the power to sort it out because you do, you do have the power to master the boat. It just takes, it takes, I guess that's probably my, my greatest pearl of wisdom for anybody is it's more about your head than it is about your body. Think it through. Definitely. You talk about having people at different parts of the boat who have different skills, but you know the the, the big adventure that that we're talking going to talk about today, the Vendée Globe, it, it, that was a solo experience. So you had to do everything. That has to change things in the way you think about things and the way you have to prepare for sailing literally around the world by yourself. Le- leading up to this experience. 
I know you've, you've had a ton of other adventure experiences and it had been many years of, of learning how to sail and whatnot, but did this feel different? Did this feel, you know, that, that next level of, of, can I do this or not? Like what, what was kind of your feeling going into this? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Absolutely, yeah. And and just kind of to put a little bit of background on it, I first read about the Vendée Globe race when I was 17 years old. So I'd just been on that sailing holiday when I was 16 and I'd really got the bug and I started devouring books on, because back then we didn't have the internet. So I started devouring books on sailing. I just read about every sailing race around the world, sailing races, just started reading everything. And I came across a magazine and it was the first time I'd ever even heard of the Vendée Globe race. Uh, And it was single-handed, non-stop, around the world in 60-foot boats that other people were racing around the world in legs with a full crew. Same kind of boat, same kind of power, but one person non-stop. And I just thought, that's got to be the hardest thing you could do, a human being could do in the whole world. I want to do that. So I eventually hit that start line when I was 47 years old. So it took me 30 years of trying, gaining experience and trying to get to the start line. And I had been so focused on getting to the start line because, I mean, that is, it's so hard to do. And then I got to the start line and I, I literally crossed the line and went, oh, okay, I've got a sour on the world now. <laughs> and you just, the moment dawns on you and you think, okay, there's two things. One, I am going to be alone for three months. And I, leading up to that, the longest time I'd ever been alone for was 58 days. What, what was that experience? That was my first ever single-handed ocean crossing, which I just did to see if I could. But I had been, I had been touring on my, I lived on a boat then, and I had been working my way around South America on it, kind of just exploring, working, exploring, working, kind of real kind of just getting to know various different places. And and then I just decided I, I I needed to go racing. And and the race, the first race I chose was the All-Star, which goes from Plymouth um, in the southwest of the UK to Newport, Rhode Island. And I had to get me and my boat back to do it. So I I my first ever, ever, ever single-handed trip was 5,800 miles from Montevideo in Uruguay to the UK. And it took me 58 days. And I just did it to see if I could. (laughs) Just to see if you could. Wow. (laughs) So so you had this idea for the Vendee Globe for 30 years. Was there ever kind of a, a window of opportunity in that 30 years where you thought this is the time and it just didn't work out? Or, or did you, have plans to do it before then? Or is it really just it marinated for 30 years straight and you were like, I'm doing it now at 47? It always was my ambition, but it's not. It In the in terms of kind of where it sits in the sp- structure of 
organized sport in this discipline of organized sport it's like the world championships it and and so you can't just go there you know you you have to climb through the ranks first but it's a really hard thing to do because in the UK it's a massively minority sport it's not supported by any of the sporting governing bodies very few other people have done it. So there are kind of no pathways to follow, no role models, no funding. And I, I think I spent, until I was 35, I, I kind of diligently worked within the sailing industry and upskilled myself. You know, I sailed many, many, many miles. I went and, and kind of did, did things on my own. I did a bit of exploring in my boat. But I think rather naively until the age of 35 I kind of thought that this first opportunity to get on my first foot on the ladder would present itself to me and and I got to my mid-30s and just realized that it was never going to happen you know I wasn't just going to walk around a corner and there would be a sign going wanted skippers solo skippers you know and it didn't matter how good I got at sailing you know there was still massive pieces missing that the kind of formal training the, the the history of racing and also the funding you know finding sponsors finding boats you know when you get up to this level it it is the same kind of you know it's the same almost as a, as formula one you know we have a, a high tech team we've got a we go all over the world to race you know you're making your way up to to that level and so at the age of 35, I just kind of thought, okay, well, I need to find the first rung myself. And that's why I decided to do this race to Rhode Island because I lived on a boat then. I had a boat. I mean, no one could call that a race boat. It, it, was, it was my home, but I had that and I could race it. And so I found the only race, the only single-handed Atlantic race that would take me in that boat and I went and did it because I realized that was my first step. This was the end goal, or at least the biggest goal at the time for a long time. And you were taking yeah. st steps to get there. You know, I I almost feel like that experience across the Atlantic is its own conversation, its own episode. It was crazy. It was crazy. Like you, I'm sure you, I'm sure the learning curve was steep. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I there were so many things. I mean, for example, we do... So when you're solo racing, you don't just go to bed for the night. You can't because the boat's still sailing. The autopilot is driving, the boat's still sailing, the conditions around you are changing. So there's a safety aspect to it, but then also there's the competitive aspect to it because you need to keep making sure that you're going as fast as you can in the right direction. So we do what is called polyphasic sleeping, which is basically sleeping in short bursts. And the trick is you need to work out kind of the times that it's, and they're appropriate to conditions. So you need to work out how long it's okay not to be aware of what's going on in the boat for. But then the other thing is, you and the faster the boat is, the shorter you periods you sleep. So at the moment, I sleep for between 20 and 30 minutes at a time. But you can never go into a deep sleep cycle. And if you do go into the deep sleep phase of sleeping, you have to make sure that you stay there until the other side. Because if you wake up mid-deep sleep, it's detriment to your overall fatigue levels. So... 
I had to learn to sleep in 40-minute bursts. For me, my deep sleep comes between 40 almost every night, and I measure it every night, but almost every night my deep sleep cycle starts at about 40 minutes in and finishes about two hours in. So if I wake up between 40 minutes and two hours, it's like I've been drugged. I can't operate. I I can't judge distances. I stagger around. It's awful. And so I had to teach myself in that first transatlantic how to do that sleeping. And it is like you're being tortured for two weeks because you're constantly trying to wake yourself up at different phases and you either get it right or you don't. And, you know, there are times, I I mean, I lost my memory during, for maybe, I don't know, I, I, I woke up at the chart table having written an entry in my sleep diary and I don't remember writing the entry. So I lost my memory at some point during that trip. But after two weeks of just banging my head against the wall, it was probably really dangerous, (laughs) just kind of dragging myself around. After two weeks, my body just went, oh, that's what you want me to do. (laughs) And ever since then, whenever I go offshore, I can just sleep for 30 minutes and then wake up. But I had to learn to do that. And, and also that trip was the first time I ever climbed a mast on my own in the middle of an ocean, which is terrifying also. <laughs> You're not making a great case for uh, the sport of sailing. <laughs> it sounds, it's very sounds extreme, like, though. Sounds like prison. <laughs> um, no, it sounds... Un- I mean, you, you just... The, the fire in you to do this has to be just truly, truly burning hot to want to continue doing this. So, so I'm sure just, I mean, it sounds like you really laid a lot of that groundwork on that first trip, just, you know, learning those skills for the first time, especially. And now you can kind of almost tap into that when you're out there. How long does it take to kind of get back to sleeping through the night or do you sleep through the night? I think this is really fascinating. So I cannot replicate this sleep pattern anywhere other than in a race situation. So even if I'm on a delivery and, and there's people on board and I, I can't do that style of sleep, it's something in my brain that you can't fall and it knows I'm in a race situation on my own on a boat and it allows me to sleep like that. The rest of the time, I sleep like I'm really grumpy if I don't get eight hours. <laughs> and it comes immediately afterwards. But the other really interesting thing is after I've been, so the Vendée Globe race was 95 days. And after I've been on the water for around 10 days, so in a normal sleep cycle, you do light sleep, deep sleep. Then you normally cycle between light sleep and REM. And it's the REM that actually is the most restorative for your brain. Now, if you're constantly waking yourself up before you go into a deep sleep cycle, then logically, you should never reach your REM phase. But actually, after I've been on a boat for 10 days, I go straight into REM when I close my eyes. I will be asleep within a minute and straight into REM at times, which I I guess it's just when I really need it. But you have... (sighs) crazy dreams 
absolutely crazy. <laughs> it, because I just the exhaustion and, and just, yeah. Is there a theme to these dreams? Is that like, do you experience that back home or is it really just in those situations? No, I think it's in those situations. And actually it's probably as a result of, so, I mean, the boat, the boat I race right now is all made of carbon. It's 60 foot long and it weighs less than 10 tons. It's capable of speeds over 40 miles an hour. The hull in places is three millimeter thick carbon with a foam sandwich and then another layer of three millimeter thick carbon. So the thinness, but also the tightness of that hull means that sailing the boat is an unbelievably physical thing and not because you're being knocked around it's because you feel that energy the energy comes through the boat into you you can feel the buzzing and the humming and the it is just incredible but it's loud as well it whines and it screams and you hear every slap against the hull and it's almost when when it's really going well it actually lifts all the way out of the water and you kind of feel this kind of little lifting flying motion and then it will tap or bash down and I think all of that energy that is so present and assaulting every sense perhaps except vision because the weird thing about it is particularly if you're down below all you can see is this surrounding cabin which is completely bare it's just stripped out carbon with all my computer screens and 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 that sort of stuff so the interior is this really boring dull flat interior that never changes so I think every other sense is completely lit up because there is so much energy everywhere and I think that probably is what creates a vivid dream is it creates the imagery that should go with that feeling of energy. Beautifully said. And that, that that makes a lot of sense on just why you love it. You're making a case for it now. This 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 is exciting. This is exciting. <laughs> okay, so, back on the way up. <laughs> take us through this this experience of uh of the Vendée Globe, just twenty-one thousand miles, almost twenty-two, forty thousand kilometers around the world over 90 days. I mean, how do you, I mean, it sounds like you, you were getting prepared for this over the years, over the 30 years, but take us through launching on this experience. What were some of the concerns you had going in as an experienced sailor, knowing probably more than anybody what you were getting into? I think I went into it and I re- I really did believe that I was capable of making it around the world, but anybody's concern is always going to be about the boat because it's three months. um, You're sailing through some of the world's toughest oceans and, you know, you prepare the boat as well as you can up to the start line. And then pretty much from the moment you cross that start line, the boat is falling apart around you because you're just wearing through things using something nonstop, you know, pulling a rope in and out, in and out, in and out, nonstop for three months, it's going to get chafe on it or maybe break. You know, all of the physical components of the boat, we had to plan for failure in everything. 
So, so much of this race is about how you prepare the boat. And actually, although all the focus is on me as a sailor, you know, we are a team sport and the boat was prepared by my technical team. And, you know, we together visualized every single thing that could go wrong on that boat. And then we worked out how me as an individual would address that so that I could carry on racing, if not just for survival, then for performance. So we had to have redundancy across as many things as possible. So I had three autopilot systems on board. I had two navigation PCs. I had four satellite communication devices. You know, it kind of went on and on and on. You're just belt and braces, belt and braces with everything. And then on top of that, you need to take tools and spares to cover repairing everything on the boat. And that is boat building. So lamination, carbon, epoxy, sail repair kit, rope repair kits. But, you know, they're super lightweight boats, so you can't load them up with a load of rubbish. You're always, everything has to earn its place on the boat. And I think I did start the race believing the boat was as well prepared as it could have been with the time and the resources that we had. But you are always just kind of really hoping that your boat will make it round. And as the race went on, you know, that slightly changed for me because I think when I started, I I just thought, I just, I just want to finish this race. To finish this race would be incredible. You know, so few people in the world have finished it. So few women have finished it. But then I kind of went, did my first trip down the uh, leg down the Atlantic from France down to the Southern Ocean off South Africa. And I was in the second oldest boat in the fleet. And I kind of thought that, you know, I would be happy with a, you know, a a back five position, you know, because in relative terms, my, my boat was 20 years older than, than the guys at the front, but actually by the time I got to the bottom of South Africa, I was actually close to halfway up the fleet. And so then, you know, you start then really wanting to push hard because I was enjoying how well I was performing and I wanted to kind of see how well I could do. But then you're constantly juggling this overall objective to get to the finish line in one piece because you know you break the boat and you can't fix it then your game is over that's it you, that, that, that is it the the Vendée Globe is non-stop no assistance so the minute you have to go to shore or ask for help then you're out and 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 you're constantly juggling this wanting to push hard because it's a race and you want to be competitive with wanting to save the boat so that you actually can finish and the southern ocean is kind of the middle leg of the race but it takes 6 weeks and the southern ocean is where you do the circumnavigation because if you want to go around the world then you go around the pole because it's the shortest distance. And the Southern Ocean is unbroken by a continental landmass. So effectively, you drop down the Atlantic, sail around the Southern Ocean, and then pop back up the Atlantic again. And it was... <laughs> Southern Ocean leg was six weeks. And I'd never been in the Southern Ocean before. You know, it is the place 
that has recorded the highest ever wave height. It is the place that has, you know, the, the most consistent gales in the world. You know, it is quite rightly so. It has a fierce reputation. And I was worried that I wouldn't be able to remain competitive, that I would just go into safety mode, that I would be scared. Because you're also so far away from help there. And, and, and yet, actually, the thrill of pushing the boat hard gripped me more than that concern. And so, out of 33, halfway through the Southern Ocean, I managed to pull up to 15th, which was unbelievable. So, you know, so good. And then the worst hit, because I passed through Point Nemo, which is the most remote place on the planet. It's closer to an international space station than to a continental landmass. And two days after I'd sailed through that point, I broke one of the rudders. So I had two rudders steering the boat and I broke one of them. And I had a spare rudder on board and I had practiced changing a rudder. What happened to break the rudder? Did you feel it immediately? Did you notice something later? Like what's happening right now? Like what what was, what? when did you realize it? It was an old rudder. It was a 20 year old rudder that went with the boat. And I was just pushing so hard. It It just cracked. And I realized, I only realized because I noticed, I was doing a, a check on the boat and I, it just didn't look right. And I took a video of it and I sent it back to my shore, my technical director on the shore. And I said, does this look right to you? And he he sent one back going, mm, no, um, it's got a crack in it. So I, I, I had to change my rudder in the Southern Ocean on my own, which was quite hard. What was that? <laughs> what was that like? How, how do you do that? Like, what does that mean? You have to get out of the boat. No, you don't. You, you actually know. And it was still quite windy. I mean, the water was about six degrees. Um, it was still quite windy. So I never actually managed to stop the boat. The boat was going, I think the slowest I managed to get the boat going was about five or six miles an hour. Um, ideally, it would have been stopped completely. But so I had to, it was quite ingenious. I had because the big problem is that the, the, the rudder comes in through the bottom of the boat. So effectively, there's a hole in the bottom of the boat and the rudder stock comes through the hole and then you attach your steering gear to that and that twists the rudder. But the rudder floats, so the pressure of the water is always pushing it up into the boat. So your first problem is you've got to try and get it out and it doesn't want to come out. So I took all of my anchor chain, I put it into a big box, I lowered the box underneath the boat on a rope. I had a pulley on the top of that box with another rope going through it. I leant over the back, drilled a hole in the old rudder, attached the rope to the hole in the old rudder. And then effectively, I was able to pull it down because there was an anchor chain ball of weight underneath the boat, six meters down. And I was using that as an anchor point to pull my rudder down to so I pulled the old rudder down and then it popped out the back and I got it on board and then I had a spare rudder with me and I had to pull that rudder down again to my anchor chain and then gently guide the rudder stock up through the hole in the bottom of the boat 
Is water coming in? Yes. <laughs> is that worrisome? Yes. Okay. okay. All right. So this is there's like no trick to this. It's 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 a it's no. Oh my goodness. No, it it took me it probably took me about two hours to set it up. And then I waited for 36 hours because when I discovered the rudder was broken, it was blowing a gale. And I looked at the weather forecast and I decided that the wind would drop. There was there was another gale coming, but I decided the wind would drop between them. I waited until I thought it had dropped as much as it would. And then I just thought, it's now or never, I'm going to have to do this. And it actually only took me 45 minutes to do. And while I was doing it, I kind of, you know, I set, I really spent a long time setting up all of these ropes and pulleys and going through it and mentally rehearsing it, mentally rehearsing it. And when I actually did it, I didn't think about failure because it couldn't fail. It had to work. And so there wasn't one single part of me that thought it might not work. I didn't let that thought creep into my head. I just did it and and it worked. Yeah, I mean, do you celebrate something like that or is it just back to business right away? I was very relieved. Um, and actually, what I... Sh- I mean, it was... I, I was also a bit desperate because two boats overtook me while I was doing it and I was really gutted they'd overtaken me. And, and so I kind of went straight back to it, just straight back, hitting it, racing, yeah. And actually... In hindsight, I absolutely should have just gone, okay, included in this process is me just chilling out for six hours, 12 hours, whatever. I just should have actually allowed myself to go to sleep, to sail slowly, because in the big picture, I think that would have been better. But I got straight back on it. And I just didn't really account for the mental and emotional toll it had all taken on me. Uh, and I I had a very tricky part of the race coming up. So it, it, over the next 10 days, I sailed to, uh, I rounded Cape Horn. And, and the weather was terrible. Now, I was going to say Cape Horn. Yeah. Which has you know that's the drake passage yeah uh some of the worst conditions for oh. in the ocean in the world it's yeah and, is, and historically speaking or just kind of the, the legend of, of of drake passage is that what you experienced there let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible that is plenty of that for now let's get back into the episode well, actually, it wasn't too bad when I actually went round Cape Horn, but it was very difficult getting there. Not so much with the wind and the waves, but actually one thing I wasn't prepared for was that how flipping cold it was when it was very stormy and it was snowing in the storms. It was snowing and the snow was landing on the deck. <laughs> I just thought I didn't sign up for this. No one told me about this. <laughs> I mean, and how are you seeing land as you go around these capes or are you too far away? I did see Cape Horn, but but from the start of the race to the finish, that's the only bit of land I saw was Cape Horn. 
and you never once stopped. No, you're not allowed to. to. Not allowed to. That's and I'm just trying to set it up for and you don't see anyone else unless a boat passes you. No, and again, so we You probably don't see each other. No, so 33 competitors, and in the whole trip, I saw Didac Costa, the Spanish competitor, twice on the horizon, tiny little dot, and I saw uh, Stefan once. That's it. As far as human interaction, that was it, and that was two dots on a horizon. Yeah, I mean, we did, we did, so... We we all kind of have a satellite link open for safety reasons, but also for the race race management and and and, and for the kind of media story. We keep a satellite link open, and we all use a, a chat messenger. And so I was kind of chatting with some of the other skippers, and you'd be vaguely in the same patch of water, you know, two or three hundred miles apart. You you think your neighbours really and. And we'd be chatting with each other. And it is quite important because for a safety perspective, and this did happen in our race, you know, if anything happened to you, then it's those people that are going to come and rescue you. You know, the, the safety authorities search and rescue are thousands of miles away, whereas your nearest competitor is 200. And in our race, Kevin Escoffier's boat sank and um, he was rescued by another competitor. His boat sank. What led to that? So his boat had been adapted to be more powerful. And and I think probably they're just, it, it was quite early. So, you know, I mentioned that our boats have these wings sticking out the side. We call them foils. And it was still kind of quite early on in understanding the implications of putting big foils into older boats and I think probably it just didn't have enough structure inside it and so the foils just basically because of the power and the foils the boat just folded up and it sank in seven minutes. So what I mean you have equipment on there for rescue you know a raft I assume and yes and stuff like that. I think in the same way that you know we we're equipped for redundancy we are, you know, really equipped to manage our own safety offshore as well. And so we have two life rafts on board, one outboard, one outside, one inside. Um, so, you know, obviously if you lose one, then you've got another one. But if you get trapped in the boat, you've still got one, you know, multiple scenarios. We have emergency beacons. So we'll have normally five or six emergency beacons on board so we can alert people to our distress but also we're constantly sending them locations we have special suits immersion suits that you put on if you think you're going to end up in a survival situation you wear this immersion suit which is kind of like a massive big neoprene suit but it doesn't allow any water inside and it stops hypothermia. It is the key to survival offshore. Just, I mean, so many layers of, of safety. We all have a huge amount of safety training. Earlier this year, I did my dive training. So we all carry small dive tanks on board. And, and every year we have to do a, a training where we, we swim under a boat and, you know, layers and layers and and with any kind of outdoor training, you know, you need to keep repeating it, keep repeating the process. 
and also keep up to date with, you know, search and rescue devices, personal devices are coming on in leaps and bounds now. So it's just kind of keeping up to date with every single thing that's out there that can let people know where you are and and let them find you. So all of that is kind of why Kevin survived and why he was found so quickly. That's that's would probably be my biggest fear is dealing with that. But you know, it, it, this is just kind of the the absurdity of what you're doing. I want to put it into context. You are racing against you know thirty some odd other boats and, and people, and your race course is the only planet that we know for sure has life on it. Like you're in your race course is the earth <laughs> itself. That is just so absurd. I mean, I've heard, I've done, you know, races where you're going across a country or a state or something, you know, thousands of miles, but not the earth itself. That is just so mind boggling that you are circumnavigating the entire planet. <laughs> I mean, isn't that crazy? <laughs> I've never heard it put like that. And I love it. <laughs> I mean, there's not a bigger race course no, you're right. out there unless you go around the moon one day in your own little capsule, but we're not there yet. I can't think of just a grander, I mean, there's nothing bigger than that. That is just so absurd. And you're doing it in a matter of months with, you know, the power that is out there, the wind and your skill with this tool that can capture that. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So um, you... Take, take us through, when, when did you know you you had this kind of in the bag? I know you probably didn't doubt like you could actually do it, but you, you finished in a very good place. What, the eighth woman to ever complete this? Yeah. When did it really start sinking in that this was, this was happening? I was going to do this. So it's weird because I think when I came around Cape Horn, there was, I did definitely think... I'm done now. You know, I just thought, oh, it's just a nip back up the Atlantic. And I, I you know, I, I've sailed all my life on the Atlantic. I've done so many miles on the Atlantic. And I kind of just felt, eh, this is, this is in the bag now, which was really stupid because it, it's quite a long way. It's still like 8,000 miles, four weeks and some really tricky sailing. And I actually got quite ill on the return leg as well. And so that, that tripped me up a bit. And then coming into the coming into the North Atlantic, I had I had a weird experience. I don't know if you know. I got I got a birthday message from Russell Crowe while I was in the North Atlantic. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> Russell Crowe. It was the strangest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. It was too. Well, it wasn't even, it was five days before the finish. It was coming into the finish. The weather was absolutely awful. I'd been unbelievably sick. I actually look at the photos of me at the time. I'd lost so much weight. I looked like a stray cat. And I was having, I was, I was really struggling mentally and emotionally. I was struggling because I had been unwell and I just hadn't expected the last bit to be so hard. Uh, and I was, I was quite low and a local DJ in the UK who'd been following the race knew it was my birthday and wanted to record a load of birthday messages for me and send them to me. And so he started tweeting as many people as he could and he got some great people 
to so some great kind of sailing legends wished me well and all that but he said to my team oh you know does Pip have any kind of favorite musicians or movie stars or anything and they panicked um because they just didn't know that about me but I'd all you know I'd always said um whenever anybody asks me what my favorite my favorite sailing movie is I I always say master and commander and so they kind of went master and commander oh Russell Crowe and so this DJ tweeted Russell Crowe and told him what I was doing and Russell Crowe recorded me a birthday message and sent it to me in the Atlantic oh my gosh so I googled it and I and I found it and uh <laughs> it made the news it made the BBC <laughs> um <laughs> holy cow that is I haven't listened to it. I have to listen to it after this now, and I'll have oh, to link a, it for folks. That's hilarious. It's a really great message. I claim the globe, he said. Wow. So, <laughs> so I mean, obviously not expected. What what did that what did that do for you? Oh, do you know what? It and not just him, so many other incredible people sent me messages. It's not all about Russell. Sorry, Russell. Um <laughs> but but it just it was at my lowest point on the race, and I think it it was a surprise, but also really kind of made me just I was so close to the finish, and I had so much to celebrate about and and it kind of just gave me that that burst of energy I needed to get to the finish and and I still had so I'd gone from fifteenth to 19th because of my rudder problems four boats had overtaken me but I started to reel them back in again and I thought I can take them I can take them yeah and and it was quite interesting because I I did have friends and family texting me on board saying you're so nearly there don't push it too hard you've got nothing to prove we've seen how just get home and I was thinking no I can take them I will take them and I, I chased and chased and chased. And I finished within six hours of two of them and 24 hours of all four of them. And they knew I was coming for them. If the race had been a week longer, I would have got them. But it wasn't really until crossing the line that I, you know, you always have this fear in the back of your mind that if something is going to happen that you cannot cope with. And actually... You know, it did it. So the guy, one of the guys who came in in the top five, he hit a fishing boat. He collided with a fishing boat 36 hours before the finish. And he he did manage to finish the race. He kind of limped across the line, but that could have been his race over. So I, I, I never stopped being on alert for that. And I don't think I ever thought this is in the bag until it actually was in the bag. I don't blame you. I mean, because the closer you get to the finish in France, the, the I'm sure traffic picks up. Yeah. So it's almost more dangerous the closer yeah. you get. You really got to make sure you you dock or whatever it is you, yeah. you do right there at the end. You know, I, I always want to ask this because we hear stories, those of us that don't sail around the world that, you know, there's shipping containers and floating heaps of, of circles of trash and, and all sorts of, you know, seaweed fronts almost looking like a weather system, but, you know, in the water, like there's all sorts of things out there. What, did you come across anything that was unique or bizarre out in the ocean that you just didn't expect or, or, or something also really beautiful that you didn't expect? 
So, I mean, the answer is yes, there is all of that stuff in the ocean. But for us as racing sailors, we don't see as much as you might think because, for example, you know, all the big piles of rubbish and that sort of stuff, they collect in areas where there is no wind. So they're taken in by the current and they stay there because there's no wind. But obviously, we're always looking for the wind. So you wouldn't see that volume of detritus in the water anywhere that the the wind's kind of constantly blowing it on. I mean, in terms of things like sargasso weed and stuff, then you have to constantly keep trying to kind of have a look at your, any bits of the boat, the rudders, the keel, the foils. You have to keep monitoring them because they quite quickly pick all of that up. Mm, Yeah. But also old fishing gear. So I've had a fishing net wrapped around my keel before. You quite often pick up long lines that they do the tuna on, you know, with all the hooks still on them. And I mean, in terms of the bigger stuff, you just have to put it out of your mind a bit because if there is a sea container out there that's partially submerged floating under the water, I'm not going to see it. And and even if I did see it, the chances of me being able to get out of the way are pretty slim. So you just kind of have to put it out of your mind. And in terms of the things that you see, you know, I'm so privileged to have seen what's out there. I mean, the albatross in the Southern Ocean are just gravity-defying Beauty. They look like those huge cargo planes with massive big underbellies and these wings that just don't ever flap and they glide and they really, really follow you. They're absolutely locked on to you as a target and it, it's beautiful. And, and any time you see whales or dolphins and because the boat's so thin, you can hear them through the hull. You quite often hear them, but you won't see them. What do you hear? Oh, just you hear them chattering, just just squeaking and chattering from quite a long way away. And I think one of the most incredible things is the, and I'm sure you've seen this, you know, anywhere you go where there is no light pollution, there are nights when there are no clouds and no moon, you can actually sail by the stars. They're so bright. And when there is a moon, it is kind of an intensity that you you don't need a torch or anything it's the most incredible intensity of light but it's all monochrome and the the well it's not colors is it there's a lack of color there but the shades the way that the light looks on different things the shadows that you cast you know it, it just is unbelievably beautiful and and that is you know, one of the many reasons why my heart and my soul and everything about me wants to be on the ocean all the time because it's a spectacular environment in so many ways. You know, what I want to know as we wrap up is, you know, you, you there's never a point you get off the boat, correct? Well, no. I mean... Th- in some scenarios, you might have to. So if there was some damage to the bottom of the boat or something wrapped around the bottom of the boat that I couldn't get off, then I might have to get my diving gear on and, and dive under the boat. But 
I mean, you would really avoid it because the boat is, it sails so quickly in so little wind. You you know, the danger of being either dragged behind it or left behind by it is really, really high when you're on your own. Oh, God. I can, oh, that's the scariest imaginable scenario. Let's wrap this up on a positive yeah. note um, <laughs> because you did finish and you've got, you've had some incredible experiences. I know you're also a runner as well, but uh, I mean, what is next for you? Let's ask that. If there is, you know, anything else on the horizon, this was a 30-year you know, you, you, this baked for 30 years. So I don't know if you've had something else that has, you know, once I do that, I would like to do this after. If not, that's fine. I feel like adventures are pressured to what's next. Sometimes you're just content and that's great. If you have something that's next, please share. And also any parting words of advice for those that, uh, that want to take on something big like that. So yeah, I'm doing the Vendée again. In November next year, yes. Got a new boat, got one that flies, and actually... And by flying, it lifts out of the water. Yes, yeah. foils yeah. or whatever, yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah, the, the start is the 10th of November next year, but there's a kind of, I'm doing build-up races to it. So I've got one in July, July 22nd, I've got a small race called the Fastnet. I've got one in November, which is double-handed so two of us on board from France to the Caribbean and then next year I'm coming to the US I've got one race that finishes in Charleston and another that starts in New York on the Hudson River which should be really exciting they're both single-handed and then the Bonday so and guess what's my advice for anybody that that has an adventure sometimes it seems really hard to just get to the start I found getting to the start of my race was way harder than the race itself. But that made me strong enough for the race. And actually, it was worth it. It is worth the sacrifice. It's worth the hard work. And when you're there, enjoy it because you deserve it. Thank you so much and have a great uh, rest of your evening. Um, Oh, I'm going sailing. Oh, (laughs) Well, outfitting. All right. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.